All right, good morning. Nice to see everybody. I want to welcome those of you that are out in the atrium or if you're tuning in online at home. Thanks for being here. For those of you that are in the room, great to have you. If you're a guest, thanks for being here this morning. Um, I, I like to say every week, if you, right inside that program cover, there's a little note from me and my cell phone number is in there. If you are a guest today and you'd like to get together and have coffee and just chat, ask any questions about our church, I would love to do that. You can just text me right at that number and we'll get it set up. That'd be wonderful. And if you've been around for a while and we haven't had the opportunity to go have coffee yet, I'd love to do that. Or tea or some other beverage later in the afternoon. I don't know. Whatever, whatever you would prefer, uh, I'm, I'm in. It'd be great to get to know you and hear a bit of your story. And again, if you're a guest, to answer any of those questions, I love to. It's one of my favorite things to do every week. So uh, just send me a text. That'd be wonderful. And uh, Jim here bid $5,000 for an hour and a half sermon, Rollin. <laughs> So, so that's where we're at today, everybody. You should know that. Uh, the kids are prepped for it. No, I'm just kidding. So good to, good to see everybody. Um, uh, my name is Ryan, by the way. I think I mentioned that. I don't know. Uh, it's, it's been a fun week. I'm, I'm now officially homeless, uh, which is exciting. I'm not homeless. I mean, I have a house to stay in, but we moved out of one house and are moving to another house. So I was up nice and early, and we have some folks that are letting us stay in a place in Red Feather, which is beautiful. Red Feathers, is it multiple feathers? It's one feather. One feather. Thank you, Jess. It's red feather. Seven red feather lake. I don't know. So uh, it's good to, it's actually good to finally be here today. Um, We're in this series called Keeping Hope Alive, where we're exploring what are the commitments of a community of faith that has a big poster in the atrium that says hope is here. Is that just empty words, right? What does it actually mean? And, and we've been exploring the demands of hope. Hope is demanding, right? There are demands placed upon us. Let me ask you this question. Have you ever been very, very sure of yourself? Like you knew you were right, absolutely 100%, like put your foot, like you put your stake in the ground, got into a massive argument with your partner, uh, your kids. That's the worst, by the way. And then you found out you were wrong. Anybody ever have that happen to you, right? How many of you love that feeling, right? That moment where you're like, oh, darn it. Like, I got to go. You just have to leave, right? Because nobody, nobody enjoys like that moment when they've been proved wrong right? Nobody wants to do that. In our world, we all have a tendency to become overconfident, right? We, we have this tendency to become overconfident. We get overconfident in our knowledge. How many of y'all get overconfident in your memory? You're like, I know, I remember that. And then like, they bring like a picture evidence and you're like, oh no, I guess not, right? Uh, we get uh, overconfident in our skills. We're very happy that this happens because we wouldn't have the internet if there weren't people out there overconfident in their skills videoing themselves, right? Uh, the epic fail videos that are out there. It's like all we just need is a trampoline or a skateboard and an overconfident person, and we're bound for a million likes, right? We need overconfidence, you're right. But what about in our relationships? Have you ever been overconfident in a relationship? Like just assumed that, oh, this person will always be around. This person, it's okay. We get overconfident in our most intimate relationships. Y'all ever noticed how the people that we're closest to, that generally we reside under the same roof, that those are the folks that we take often for granted the most? That we just become confident, right? We don't spend time like we might have before when we were just dating and we were living in different households. You know what I mean? 
We get overconfident in our relationships. Another area, another space, speaking of church, since you're here or you're tuning in, is we can get overconfident in matters of faith. Anybody been there before? Been just certain and so sure of it? Like most of Christianity, truth be told, pardon me for one second, most of Christianity, when, when it talks about things like spiritual growth, y'all ever heard that phrase before, spiritual growth? Anybody ever heard that? Anybody ever been accused of not spiritually growing before? <laughs> right? Spiritual growth, it's kind of a buzzword. Or discipleship, maybe you've heard this word that we don't use anyplace else on the planet, so it's even more weird, you know? Church has its own lexicon, right? And we just have our own weird words, you know? If you're like a guest and you've never been to church, you come and you hear all these weird words, right? But we have something like spiritual growth or spiritual health. And spiritual growth, uh, for a long time, especially in the Western church, has really been about like growth in knowledge and certainty, right? You show up to a class, you're given all the bullet points, the fill-ins, you get your fill-ins today. We're going to tell you what you should know, what you should believe. You memorize it. You get confident in it. You know, in some places you go through the classes and then you're, you can be baptized or then you can serve or volunteer in an area. But it's really about growth in knowledge. And it's really about making sure that I am confident in my beliefs. I'm confident in what I know is right and what others are doing is wrong. And that's kind of the way in which we think about spiritual growth. And that produces an overconfident spirituality. And overconfidence in our faith, overconfidence in our understanding of the God or God or the universe, whatever word you choose to use that's behind it all, that's holding everything together, right? That overconfidence gives birth to something very dangerous, and, and it's called certainty when it comes to our faith, right? So overconfidence gives birth to this thing called certainty. And then here's what happens. Certainty grows up, and certainty becomes drinking buddies with ignorance, and when certainty and ignorance like, come up to the bar together and are out for a good time, problems happen, <laughs> right? When certainty and ignorance become like just hanging out, drinking buddies, let's go talk, let's figure it all out, what happens is we get stunted in our growth. And so this friendship, right, that, that is such a part of so much of Christianity produces not only just a lack of growth, but it also produces, an ex there's like this expulsion that happens, Right? When a person can't meet our standards of, of this is what you're supposed to believe, and this is how you're supposed to talk, and this is what you're supposed to say, and this is how many times you're supposed to go to church, and this is what you're supposed to give. If, we can, if you don't meet those standards, what happens is like Christianity, like church world, whatever words you like, ends up just kind of like spewing that person out. You're not allowed to ask questions. Not, you have to understand it. If you have any kind of doubt, then there's a oh, doubt. Oh, hold on a second. We don't doubt here. You just got to have more faith, right? And all this bubbles up because we've got certainty that coming alongside of ignorance, right? Ignorance is just not knowing something, but certainty presents itself, and then we don't know that we don't know something, right? And here's the truth. If we're not growing, we're dying. If we're not growing spiritually, we're just dying spiritually. Atrophy sets in. And growth is a very, very challenging, difficult process when it comes to our spiritual lives. So I want to look today at Scripture. I know uh, I get accused of not doing that, but I really do. Every week we, we look at Scripture here. You are welcome to bring your Bibles to. That's another thing I've been accused of. I've been accused of that no, we don't have Bibles here. Bring a Bible if you want to. I'm not stopping you from that. Turn your Bible on. Put it on your phone. I don't really care. 
I'm just glad I got that off my chest. All right. No problems here. Bring a Bible. I don't, I have no, there's no signs outside that say no Bibles allowed. Bring a Bible. It's wonderful. I just don't know all the books of the Bible, so I'm not going to be up here trying to find it while I'm talking. You know, it's very confusing. There's 66 of them in there. It's challenging. So here's the thing. I want to look for just a moment at a couple of, 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 of like stories from one person in the New Testament, one of Jesus' disciples, who is like the poster child for what spiritual growth looks like, and that's Peter. Like, Peter is just a portrait of spiritual growth. This guy was so messed up. Like, overconfident when he shouldn't have been, underconfident when he should have been, constantly changing. And so I just want to kind of take a, a, a look at two moments in the life of Peter, one with Jesus and then one post-resurrected Jesus, okay? So before the cross, after the cross kind of deal, all right? And I want to look first at this passage in Mark. So Mark, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are the four Gospels. If you're new to reading your Bible or studying the Bible, or you're not, there's these four Gospels that give us kind of the story of Jesus and the one Gospel from different perspectives, right? And I think it's beautiful that we have four versions of the one gospel of Jesus, the good news of Jesus, told from these different perspectives. So Mark chapter 8, there's this moment where Jesus is teaching his disciples, and he's hanging out with them, and he's doing what a good rabbi would do in the first century. They're sitting around, and this is what it says. It says, he started teaching them that the son of Adam was destined to suffer a great deal and be rejected by the elders and the ranking priests and the scholars, and to be killed, and after three days, rise. And he would say this openly, okay? So Jesus is talking about this phrase, son of Adam. Maybe you've heard it, son of man, uh, whatever it might be. It comes from a, a prophetic book uh, called Daniel that was kind of written about, maybe, maybe compiled two, three hundred years before Jesus. And it was this messianic figure, this idea of someone that was going to come who wasn't going to rule like a beast, okay? So in the prophetic visions of Daniel, you have these kingdoms, these empires, but they're like lions, and they're like tigers, and they're like bears. Oh my, you know, like, and then, and then there's one that comes like a son of man. In other words, there's a rule that's coming to the earth that is what it means to be human, right? And that's actually, I think, what Jesus shows us, by the way. I think Jesus shows us what it means to be human, not to be God, not to be perfect, but to be human, this is a beautiful picture of what it means to be human, right? So Jesus is talking about the Son of Man. Now, some scholars debate, was Jesus talking about himself? He's talking in the third person. How many of y'all love it when people talk about themselves in the third person? I hate that. Super pet peeve of Ryan's. Can't stand it, right? <laughs> so Jesus is talking. Some people, maybe Jesus thought there was a different Son of Man. Maybe he's talking about himself. Don't really know. Uh, there's, there's some debate about that. But so Jesus is talking, and, he ta and Peter like, pulls Jesus aside now, doesn't like what he's hearing, and he begins to lecture Jesus. I love that word, lecture Jesus. Your kids ever lecture you? Yeah, right? <laughs> Let's just, let me set you straight, Dad, you know? See, so Peter begins to lecture Jesus, and he kind of, he's like, you can't, what are you saying? Don't know. And Jesus like turns and sees his other disciples there, and he reprimands Peter verbally right? And so he says to Peter, get out of my sight, Satan. Now, hopefully you don't ever say that to your kids, right? But if you do, you know, what would Jesus do? Wear the bracelet, you know? Get behind me, you little devil, right? That's, it's all right there. It's what would Jesus say, right? So he says, and by the way, there's a, there's a lot of scholarship on this passage of scripture that 
that people do question whether or not this goes back to the historical Jesus or if this is something that kind of comes out of post-resurrection, people thinking about Jesus and all that would have been like confronting Jesus about his path, right? And so the point of this story isn't to say, well, did Jesus actually say it? The point is Jesus is saying, there's a way of thinking that is not good for human beings, right? And that is a way that says there is some path out of suffering, right? And, and we don't know if at the time Peter thought that Jesus was talking about himself or he was just talking about this future ruler that would come. And Peter says, no, that's not how it's going to work. And Jesus says, get behind me. He says, you're not thinking in God's terms, but in human terms. And so in this moment, we see Peter, right, gets this huge lesson from Jesus that Peter, Jesus is saying, listen, you got to learn that there's two ways of seeing this world. There's two ways of understanding the circumstances around us. There's two ways, there's two sets of eyes you can put on. Jesus says there's a God way of thinking. There's a divine perspective. There's a divine perspective that looks at the, this like universal love that's in this world. Right? There's this desire for a universal love to be experienced by all of humanity. It's a unifying vision. It's a way of seeing the world where every person is equally loved. Every person is equally valued. doesn't matter their race, their religion, their sexuality, their immigration status. doesn't matter any of that stuff. And this was the divine hope for all of humanity. And then basically Jesus is saying that's, that's one way to see it. That's this like God's way of seeing things. And there's a key word when you think about like God's way of seeing the world. And that would be like union, unity. There's a vision for a united reality right? Where, where we don't see one another for our differences. We don't see one another uh, and, and base, uh, base our, our, our thoughts on how, how much a person can do for me, right? Or how much can I do for this person? But there's this union that comes when we're actually living in the flow of the Spirit, right? When we're, that's how Paul's language when we talk about living in Christ, in the Spirit. But then there's also a second way of seeing things, which is the way Peter would look through his lens, and that was a human perspective, Right? So Jesus says, Satan, get behind me. You're not seeing the world as God sees it. You're seeing it as human beings see it. And the human beings, we see the world through a set of lenses that says, what do I want? My desires. What are my dreams for me? Right? It's not the hope for all humanity. It's the hope for Ryan. It's the hope for Ryan to have a bigger garage with more stuff in it. It's the hope for Ryan to have certain things. It's the hope for me it's, it's, it's othering. It's saying, oh, well, this person doesn't believe like me, so they, they, they must, oh, poor them. Poor them. They just don't get it right. Suffering it would be, oh, avoid all suffering. There's no place for suffering in our lives. Jesus is saying, no, 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 that, that's a divided sense of seeing the world. That's not united or that's not union, but that's divided. There's a duality there. There's an either or. There's an in and an out. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. The divine way of seeing it is that all things, even suffering, even death, can be a part of what God can redeem. I, don't, I think there's a difference between what, what God redeems, what love redeems, and what a plan is, okay? So I actually, I, and again, I say this, it gets me in trouble. I actually think it's very unhealthy for people to say, well, that's just God's plan for your life. You know, your cat died, your dog died, your cousin died, your mom died, your brother died. It's just God's plan. I don't believe that. I believe there's a redemptive reality to love that can take the death of a, a dog, a cat. The, the most horrible circumstances in our lives, loss of children that can be redemptive, but I don't see that as a plan from a good reality. 
right? But there's that, that's the idea of union, like a united view that says just because these things happen, just because suffering happens, just because loss happens, that doesn't mean that I have to avoid them, I have to say there's no place for it, but I can bring those and I can recognize if I can see through the eyes of God that there is redemption. And so spiritual growth, like I think what Jesus was saying to, to Peter and what we get out of this is spiritual growth is growing in our ability to see through that divine perspective. Like we're going to see through human eyes. That's just, we're going to always look through that personal perspective, right? You know why we're always going to look through that personal perspective? Because nobody has Jesus Christ as a co-signer on their bank account. Y'all have, does Jesus have access to your, like an ATM card, right? When you go to the bank, do you ever like really live it out and be like, I just, everything belongs to God. So I just need an ATM card for God. I must leave it on the dresser here. God wants some cash, God can get cash out. No, like we don't do that. We always look at our bank accounts, it's got our name on it, right? The registration for our vehicles has our name on it, right? The hospital bill has our name on it. And so we're always gonna see through a human perspective. But what spiritual growth is meant to do, and I think what we'll see through the life of Peter, if you really kind of study, is that there's those moments where we're so, we're so blessed to have the Spirit of God open our eyes up and give us a bit more of a divine perspective, to give us a vision for what life could be if we live out this union. So there's a second story that involves Peter that I want to look at for just a moment. And this is found in Acts chapter 10. And this is really a fascinating story. I can't read all of Acts. I could read all of Acts chapter 10 because you paid $5,000 for the deal, Jim. Uh, so I apologize. But in Acts chapter 10, we find this story of a Roman soldier, Roman centurion. His name's Cornelius, and he has a vision, and he's told to go find a guy named Peter and go meet with Peter. And, and we're told that this centurion is a God-fearer, which means that they were a pagan person, but they were interested in the things of God. They were interested in the Jewish God as well as the Roman gods. I don't want you to get the idea that because Cornelius is called a God-fearer, that somehow Cornelius was monotheistic and he had it all together and he worshiped the God of Israel. No, he just, he, he valued what they believed in. There was a place for that God alongside the other gods. There's no possible way in my very, very arrogant opinion. It's not really humble when you say there's no possible way, right? So I seriously doubt that a Roman centurion is not going to the Roman gods before they go out to war and offering all the sacrifices to keep their families protected. But, he, but this soldier was very generous to the Jewish people, which was probably unlike most Romans toward the occupied people. And, and so there's this heart in the centurion, there's this heart in Cornelius for the things of God. And what's fascinating is Peter doesn't really know anything about this. So we're told Cornelius has this vision, go get Peter, go find him. Now the next day we find Peter's out and he, he's hungry, it's about time for lunch. He goes up on the top of this building that he's staying in and he kind of lays down and he has a vision, he has a dream, right? And in this dream he sees this huge, what looks like a, a sheet, like a, just imagine a bed sheet, let's say. And it's coming down from heaven and inside of the bedsheet is every animal you could ever imagine. And in this moment, Peter's going to have an epiphany. And this is one of those passages in the Bible that's like two steps forward. You know, the Bible is a text in travail. Everything we have in the Bible is not a perfect image of God. Everything we have in the Bible is an image of God that's given to us through people, and it's God breaking into humanity. 
And so we have these beautiful moments, like what we're going to see, where it's like a two-step forward, like the heart of God is breaking in. But then we have these other passages that are like one step backwards, you know? So you have the two-step forward passages of like Jonah that say, hey, I've got to, I love everybody. I've got to, I even love your, your arch enemies, the Ninevites, right, if you know that story. And then we have like the one-step passage, maybe even like 20-step passage backwards, where like... God is said to like, go kill all the Amalekites and you can have the virgins for yourself. Like that's a step backwards, okay? So that's not a perfect image of God. That's a perfect image of what we as humans like to do with God. Like let's just get God on our side. Then we have these other beautiful passages where the angel of God shows up and they're like, whose side are you on? And the angel's like, I'm not on anybody's side. I'm with God. (laughs) Like, oh, good, good point. So this is one of those beautiful two-step forward passages that we have. And here's what it says in Acts chapter 10. So the, the sheet comes down, and, and Peter hears this voice. It says, get up, Peter, and have a barbecue. Get up, slaughter, and eat. And Peter says, no way, certainly not, sir, for never have I eaten anything profane and unclean. Peter says, I have been a kosher, good Jewish boy my whole life. Those things have never touched. We're not allowed to eat those things. Do I need to quote you the scripture verse? We don't eat those things. I'm not going to do it. But the voice spoke to him a second time. What God has made clean, you are not to call profane. One of the most beautiful passages in all of the Christian scripture right there. Like that should be everybody's life verse. Nobody has this as a life verse. I don't know why we don't have this as a life verse. What God has made clean, you are not to call profane. Because you know why that should be our life verse in the church right now? Because what we've done for however long you can imagine is we've just continued to call people profane. We've just continued to label people and exclude them. And God says, don't, no, don't call anything profane that I've made clean. And it says this happened three times and then the object was taken up into the sky. And while Peter was in doubt about it, I love it. While Peter was in doubt about the meaning of the vision he had seen, the men sent by Cornelius, uh, they appeared. They came to Simon's house. They arrived at the entrance. Now, here's what's powerful, right? For those of us that love certainty, for those of us that think we're just supposed to get this down to like the, the, the 16 fundamental truths, here's what you're supposed to believe, the 10 things, here's the three things, here's the one thing, right? Here's what happens. Notice what's happening. The Spirit of God is causing Peter to doubt what he knows about God. Like, that's crazy. Wait, wait, Ryan, are you trying to tell me that God is going to do things in my life to make me doubt God? Yes. Absolutely. So when people freak out, we're like, I don't know if I can believe that. I go, oh, good. Maybe you shouldn't believe it. Maybe we did. Maybe we did. I don't know. But it seems like this is a wonderful example where the Spirit of God is at work untangling a big tangled mess of religion. And here's the thing, when traditions, traditions in our faith, traditions in our religion, when those things become exclusions, we need a disruptive vision. So you see, for Peter, the dietary laws were no longer about, and for the Jewish people, they were no longer about this, just setting themselves apart, they had become a way to exclude people. They'd become laws that says, well, if you eat it, then I can't be with you. 
If you eat it, then I'm, I can't, I got to be so careful that I don't want to become unclean. And so those laws, those things had become a point of exclusion. And to untangle that exclusionary practice, there had to be a disruptive vision. And that's what Peter experiences. So the guys show up from Cornelius looking for Peter. They're downstairs. Simon comes out of this, like Peter comes out of this. Uh, by the way, Simon and Peter are the same people if you're new to the story. I just realized I'm throwing those names out. And if you're sitting here like, who is Peter, what are you talking about? I sincerely apologize. So here's the thing. They call out, those men, they call out, where's Simon? Is he here? This guy called Peter. And, and is he staying here? And while Peter's pondering the vision, the Spirit says to him, there are three men that are looking for you downstairs. So get up, go down there, and accompany them without hesitation, because I have sent them. Now here's the thing. These are not Jewish people. <laughs> There's a good chance these are the, the, the servants of the Roman centurion. And so Peter goes downstairs to meet these men, and he says, I'm the one you're looking for. What's the reason for your being here? And we don't, we gotta realize there's probably some fear here in Peter. Like these are, these are Romans. He's, he's an occupied person. They're showing up at his door saying, you need to come with me. Our boss wants to see you. <laughs> I'd be like, uh, sorry, God, no. I'm not going down there. I'm eating. You just told me I could eat all this stuff. I've never had it before. And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man. Whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> like they saw it on Peter's face. Like, <laughs> shut the door, you know. He's like, no, he's an upright and God-fearing man. He's respected by the whole Jewish nation. He was directed by a holy angel to summon you to his house and to hear what you have to say. And here's what Peter does in that moment. It's so powerful. We'll miss it if we don't pause he invites them in and shows them hospitality. Now, that might not seem like a big deal, but let me ask you this question. When was the last time somebody came to your door <laughs> selling something, wanted to talk, and you were like, come on in. We got some cold beer. We got iced tea. We got water. What do you want? Let's sit down together, right? Probably never, okay? But Peter does this with people that are of a totally different ethnicity that are occupying, oppressing him, that to bring them in and to show hospitality would immediately make him unclean. He was breaking his, the laws of his people. Here's what's interesting. Peter's spiritual growth didn't start with the vision. It didn't start with the word. It started with the hospitality. Right? Peter grew when he stepped into something new. Right? It wasn't because he heard it. It wasn't because he filled in the blank during the message. Ha <laughs> you're filling in a blank. Like, look at me, I filled in the blank. <laughs> no, it was when he opened the door and he said, come on in. Come on in. And he had hospitality, shared a meal with them. And it says the next day he got up and went with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa went with him as well. And on the following day he entered Caesarea, and Cornelius was expecting them and had called together all of his relatives and close friends. So Cornelius had gathered a crowd to hear, like, what does this Peter guy got to say? And it says, when Peter entered, Cornelius met with him and he fell at his feet and paid him homage. And Peter, however, raised him up and said, get up, get up, get up. I'm just a human being like you. And while he conversed with him, he went in and found many people gathered together. And this is what Peter says to them. This is amazing. He says, you know that it's unlawful for a Jewish man to associate with or visit a Gentile. 
Like, what I'm doing here is, is, is illegal. It's, it's not that it's just like we prefer not to. <laughs> like, it's against the law. It's against his Bible. Let that one sink in for a second. It's against what he's been taught about God and purity. And this is what he says, but God has shown me that I should not call any person profane or unclean. Any person profane or unclean. Any person illegal. Any person immoral. I shouldn't call anybody anything like that. Whoa, 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 whoa. What do you think profane means? It means immoral. It means unethical. It means outside of God's desire, God's will, God's plan. And Peter says, God has shown me I shouldn't call anybody that. But Ryan, what if they've fill in the blank? But Peter, certainly you would call a murderer profane or unclean. He said, no, I don't think so. It's not how this works. And see, Peter had to come to a point where he had to accept the idea that his idea of God was flawed. Because his whole life he'd been told this is who God accepts and this is who God rejects. And he has this disruptive vision and he decides, that's it, I'm changing. And so in that moment, Peter proclaimed this was Jesus. This is what Jesus is revealing about the God of the universe. That the God of the universe does not push anyone away but has brought everyone to God's self. And he pro proclaims this good news of the gospel of the kingdom of God that's for the poor, for the oppressed, for the outsider, for the excluded, for you, who I thought was excluded. This gospel is for you. God is for you. God is, wants to be a part of you. God is in you, working through you. So he's explaining all of this, and he talks about the cross. He interprets and brings meaning to the cross through his experience. And in that moment, they all have this really wild experience with the Holy Spirit. And there's this moment where Peter realizes, wait, they don't have to become Jews to experience God? Now, that might not strike you as weird, okay? But let me say it this way, and this will get me run out. <laughs> Hold on. I need to take a breath for this one, okay? Because this really will. Like, you'll vote me out on this one, okay? You mean you don't have to become a Christian to experience God? I think that's the whole point. I think that's the radical reality here. And we pass by it because we just created another religion and we put it in Jesus' name. But the gospel is saying, no, it's for everybody. Nobody's profane. Nobody's outside of it. And what we did was we promptly, like I think the, one of the missional identities of Jesus was to kind of bring to an end this idea that religion is necessary to broker a relationship with God and you got to get it all right. He ends that and then we just like promptly created a new religion. Now, is there anything wrong with Christian? Well, I shouldn't ask that question. Is there... <laughs> There's nothing necessarily inherently wrong with choosing to experience God as a Christian through, through this mechanism, right? I've given my life to it. I think it's very powerful and, and poignant and, and wonderful. But it's, it's not necessary. That's what Jesus, that's what Peter, I think this whole idea is. And so what happens is like they see all of this and, and these believers, these Jewish believers, right? Because they're all Jews at the time, right? Really, this is very early in the Christian movement. There's no such thing as Judaism and Christianity. There's just, there's, there's Jews that are kind of following Jesus and there's Jews that aren't. 
And it says a few verses later that the circumcised believers, so they were Jews, that's what that's telling us, that they were committed Jews, grew up Judaism, went to temple. They were astounded that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles for they could hear them speaking in tongues and glorifying God. They said, this is crazy. We're in, they're out. What's going on? Whoa, hold on a second. And then Peter says this. This is so good. Peter says, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people? See, baptism was a sign of initiation. Baptism meant you're in. It was a sign of community. Now you're a part of it. He says, can anybody do that? They've received the Holy Spirit just like we have. And he ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Peter got it wrong here because we all know you're supposed to baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, but we'll let that one go. <laughs> it's, I mean, it's right there, you know what I mean? But we'll, we will split Christianity over that one, right? We just should, we should let, be able to laugh at ourselves, by the way, like, and just own it. Like, oh yeah, that was dumb. Why are we worrying about that? He said, so he baptizes them and then they stay for a few days. It wasn't like, get out of Dodge. We don't want people to see us. No, they stay. So here's the thing. Hope for the Gentiles, right? So hope for the world outside of, of, of Judaism, it demanded Peter grow spiritually. Think about if Peter wouldn't have been willing to hear that disruptive vision that came into his life, to follow that spiritual prompting to not follow his Bible, to not follow his tradition, but to follow in the living spirit that says, no, God says you don't call anyone profane. You don't call anyone, anybody that I've made. Like that spiritual growth, he had to change his mind. And I think the same is true of us, always should be. That if we're gonna have hope is here, we have to always be willing to look because hope demands that we grow spiritually. And that does not mean that we grow in our just knowledge of the Bible. That's Christian education. Spiritual growth is not your Christian education. You should have Christian education. I'm not down on that. You should understand like the heritage and the history. You should learn about doctrines that have been thought of and, and, and have been passed down and that have been accepted and then rejected. Like those are all wonderful things. There's nothing wrong with that. But it's just education. It's not necessarily spiritual growth. It's not bad, it's just not enough. It's just spiritual learning. Wonderful, let's do it. But spiritual growth is always about action. <laughs> it follows action and contemplation. I love this story of Peter, I just love it because he contemplates what he's experiencing. This, this disruptive vision that he has, he contemplates it, but then he does what? He opens the door. Well, probably this way, I don't know how they open doors, you know. And he says, come on in. And then he does something even crazier. He goes. And he says, what I've been told, essentially, what I've been told about God my whole life is wrong. It's wrong. And that's what Jesus reveals. Here's the thing. I don't think Jesus ended something that was right. <laughs> I think Jesus corrected something that was always wrong. And that's okay. We should find great hope in that, that we can be wrong and still God be present around us and working through us, but we always have to be open to correction. And here's how, like, here's how fundamentalist heritage Christianity thinks about the word correction. I have to put this down. This is how we think about correction. Don't do that. Bad. Bad Christian. Bad Christian. Bad, bad, bad Christian. It's like, 
moral correction, but what if the correction of the Spirit is not about just our behavior, but what if it's also about our beliefs? What if it's about things that, that made perfect sense and were handed to us, but, but because of God at work, there's something new. There's a fresh wind. There's this, the work of the Spirit. I love this phrase. I think I heard it from Richard Rohr. I don't know. I've said it enough now that I just am going to start to claim it as my own. Um, but it says, you don't think yourself into new ways of acting. You act yourself into new ways of thinking. It's not until you engage, it's not until you take action will the transformation really take place. It wasn't until that door opened, right? I mean, he pondered the vision with all of his heart. What's going on? And at just the right moment, God brought the opportunity right in front of him and said, well, let's see, Pete. Let's see, do you want to do it? Do you want to go through the process of deconstruction and reconstruction or do you just want to hold on to it? What are you going to do? But I'm bringing it right to your door. And, and I think this is one of the reasons why like, baptism persists at such a beautiful first step in the Christian faith, right? It's weird. I totally get it. We don't baptize people anyplace else. It's strange. But I think it persists because it is an action that flows from a contemplative reality in a person's life, and it gets manifested in an action of baptism. So there's this idea, hey, wait a second. Like, maybe I am loved by God. Maybe I don't have to have it offered, but maybe I am actually forgiven. Maybe I am worthy of love and attention. Maybe I am a part of something bigger than me. So there's a contemplative reality to it, and then there's an action step of getting into this tank and dying to the old ways of thinking about yourself and the world and, and being raised into new life in Christ. I think that's why it persists. Contemplation and action both require time and attention. It's not just something that happens overnight. So I want to encourage you, spend time praying. Spend time meditating, reading, listening, all of these contemplative ways. Spend time observing the world in which you live in, the real world. Not the world you want to exist because your religion told you this is how everybody should believe or behave, right? Not the world that CNN tells you or the world that Fox News tells you or the world that whatever, whatever tells you. But just look at it and ponder it, and let it just sit, and let that reality soak. And maybe God wants to give you a disruptive vision. I would avoid, like, soundbite spirituality. <laughs> you know what that is. All things work together. I mean, it's good, but it's just soundbite spirituality. Like, really live into it. And I want to encourage you to regularly go out on a limb. Regularly go out on a limb inside your program. Um, there's, a, uh, there's a little card that looks like this. And, and you can take this home and look at it. And please don't freak out on me. It has the word yoga and tai chi on it, okay? Just, everybody just take a nice deep breath. <laughs> okay, all right, so now we're okay. We're calmed down. This just talks about all these different contemplative practices that, that you can engage in that can just begin to set your mind and heart onto the reality of God. If you, if you have never done yoga or Tai Chi, don't do that. I'm not telling you to go do yoga and Tai Chi, all right? But if you like yoga and Tai Chi, go do yoga and Tai Chi and think about Jesus, okay? Like, but these are all these different practices, and each branch kind of represents a different way. There's stillness. 
There's generative nature. There's creativity, right? There's the active side, relational. There's movement. Like These are all wonderful ways that we can, we can begin to contemplate the real God, the universe, love, whatever word you like. So, so take a look at that. And <laughs> what I think this does, if we, if we live into it, if we really live the heart of Peter, if we really take what the story means, okay, and we ask, what does God want? What's the wisdom of the story? Is that God brings disruptive visions into our lives to challenge what we think we know about God that's too great a mystery to understand, and we're always faced with a choice. Are we going to like live into what God is doing today, or are we going to hang on to the traditions that might have served us very well, might have served us very well, but they will not serve us now? And what happens if we commit ourselves to that kind of spiritual growth, like this kind of wisdom will produce, this kind of spiritual growth will produce wisdom with humility. How many of y'all know that person who's wise but not humble? <laughs> right, wisdom with you says, oh, this is the best I got right now. Like, I feel like right now, honestly, this passage, this is the best I got for you right now, but I can read a book tomorrow that could change it all. But there's wisdom with humility because wisdom without humility always, always, always becomes violence. It always becomes violence because we're so certain everybody's supposed to believe this way. So we go on our crusades. We're so certain everybody has to do this. We're so certain that we understand Jesus perfectly. We're so certain we'll call this person profane and we'll call that religion profane and we'll call this because why we're so certain we have no humility. Wisdom without humility always becomes violence, always does. But wisdom with humility, <laughs> wisdom with humility opens doors. It opens doors, it makes space for everyone, and it says, come, let's reason together. Let's talk, let's share a drink, let's trust in the goodness of God, and let's, let's be together, let's live in that space of union. So as we wrap up, what is it that God's inviting you into today? This can be really challenging and disorienting. I get that. What is it that God's inviting you into today? I hope that you sense that God's inviting you into looking at a couple of different contemplative practices this week. Give it a shot, right? Just take a look at that tree and like, I'm going to go on a walk or I'm going to try Tai Chi. I'm <laughs> just kidding. Whatever it might be, just to focus your heart on the disruptive nature of God. Jesus was a disruptive force. And I think the spirit of Jesus is still a disruptive force, always calling us to more love, always calling us to more inclusion, always calling us to more humility, always calling us into more mystery, because that's where faith is. That's the spirit of God still at work. The same spirit that raised Christ from the dead lives in you. Whether I know it or not, whether you know it or not, that disruptive spirit that is calling us to greater love, calling us to a higher purpose in life is present. And I don't have to be afraid of anyone. Perfect love casts out fear. I don't have to be afraid of God. I don't have to be afraid of you. I don't have to be afraid of any religion. I don't have to be afraid of anything because I believe in perfect love. And I believe that's what Jesus reveals. And that's why I believe the scripture is so beautiful and why it's my sacred scripture. Because it's that love pressing in to the normality of human exclusion and violence. But it breaks in and it says... Nobody's profane. Nobody. 
And I don't care who hates that message. Nobody is profane. Nobody. God's too big for us to put those labels on people. And I don't have any idea how we could get it so wrong. How I could get it so wrong for so long. That's the beauty of it all. And hope demands that we're always willing to say, I was wrong. I should have never excluded you. I should have never judged you. I should have never. And then we just grow spiritually and we rub shoulders with who we thought once was profane and they transform us and we're like, God, that was Jesus in my life. So we're going to sing this beautiful song, Bigger Than I Thought, as we wrap up. And I just would encourage you to open your heart up to this disruptive spirit of Jesus that says, hey, what you believe might have been great and it might have been what you needed and it might have got you started on a journey, but maybe it's not exactly what you need for tomorrow. Let's stand and sing this together. you with freedom, freedom to explore your beliefs and your traditions, freedom to see God's love and grace in the most unusual places. And like Peter, may we all have disorienting visions, visions that shake us from our belief that we are somehow better than others, visions that invite us into, that invite us into radical hospitality visions that lead us to spiritual growth and may crossroads may our church be a community that embraces this uncomfortable journey of spiritual growth a journey of action and contemplation that leads us into the peacemaking heart of God and may you find rest and joy and wisdom as you live in and bring the hope of Jesus to others this week